tell you what, there's nothing harder than being up here in front of a bunch of eyeballs that are staring at you. And so he does such a great job leading us in the worship. And, so. and he does it every week without fail. And so I just thank you. Anyways, well, great to be with you. You know, something dawned on me during the announcement time there when Pete was delivering that and then making me feel embarrassed up front was this is going to be his last Sunday in this capacity on this platform. He will be gone forever. No, he's, he's obviously, some of you know, he's moving back to uh, Wales and that was the intent. He was going to come over for two years and be trained up and study and then go back and plant churches, which he's going to do in Manchester, England. But it just kind of, he's been in my life for two, over two years and let's just let this soak in for a moment. You know, this great loss that I'm going to have. Okay, I'm over it now. I want to introduce you to Pete's, I want to introduce you to Pete's replacement. Come on up, Nick. Everybody say hi to Nick. Pete and his family are going to move in with us for a couple weeks, and so we're going to have plenty of time to have some more bonding before we leave. But I just wanted you to meet Nick Johnson real quick. You're going to hear more from him later. In fact, he's going to be out underneath that tent as well, giving away free hugs, okay, for you to get to know him. So, Nick, I have one so, so, Nick, the Lord just said... This is your guy, and I'm so excited to have him here. And you're going to learn so much about him. He does this thumb trick. This is the most incredible thing you've ever seen. And so um, I got one question for you. Are you excited to be at Scottsdale Bible Church Cactus? I am super excited. He's super excited. Right answer? Right answer. Okay. More from Nick later. And so if you tuned in today expecting to see Pastor Daryl, I'm sorry. But the good news is he's being recorded and you can watch him tomorrow. I was kind of a, a, a nice insert into our Somerset series, so it's a great privilege to be in front of my people. And so thank you for affording me this privilege. And let's pray as we get into the Word. And I want to get into that quickly um, so that uh, we can let the Lord continue to minister to us as he already has. So let's pray together. Lord, thank you for this morning. Thank you that you allowed me to be your chosen vessel to... Bring your word, um, Lord. I, I can think many years ago, this would be the last place on earth that I would have ever dreamed I would be standing before. And so, Lord, I only do it in your strength. And so, Holy Spirit, speak through your word, through my lips, and may you reach each and every one of us where we're at this morning. And as Pete prayed earlier, this is a message about unity. And so, Lord, I pray that you would reach us where we're at and draw us closer to you, which ultimately will draw us closer together as a family. So Lord, anoint this time that we have together this morning. In Jesus' name, amen. You know, unity is a big deal. You know, I, I've, I've spent a little bit of time this summer in some different types of groups. You know, a lot of times I'm in groups which are all Christian. And so we all have a lot of the same things in common. I'm able to share scripture. We're able to pray together. We have a lot of things in common. But I found myself uncharacteristically in large groups of non-Christians. In fact, there's been some instances where if I'm not the only Christian in the group, I'm one of only a few. And so I'm going into the world just like you do every single day. And one particular instance, I was in a wedding. And you're going to say, well, that seems like your normal job. Well, this wedding wasn't the normal wedding. This was a wedding for one of my, well, actually, one of my brothers. And what was unique about it was it was his third wedding. 
okay? My, my family likes to get married several times, and so he was no exception to that rule. Um, and so he, he was going to have a justice of the peace kind of do the main part of it, but he feels some connection to me, although he's not a Christian. He says, is there any way you could provide some type of blessing during the service? But it can't have any religious overtones. <laughs> and I said, well, that's going to be awfully difficult, being that my job is to promote religious overtones on a regular basis. And so, <laughs> so I, he said, I said, well, I can't do that. And he says, well, do your best. And I said, well... I'm thinking, how do you do your best and not have any religious overtones and you're the pastor at a wedding? And so, anyways, I sat back and I kind of sat in the wings waiting for my turn to come up as part of the ceremony. And what was fascinating about this ceremony, you want to talk about our changing world, is this ceremony was done by a justice of the peace and it took me a while to figure it out, but it was completely gender neutral. There was no reference to husband or wife, man or woman, he or she. And at one point in time when the Justice of the Peace was asking my brother to pledge his undivine love to this person, I was blown away. Actually, he started to chuckle a little bit, and then I started to chuckle a little bit, and then I got extremely nervous because I'm standing in this backyard at this wedding, and I realize everybody's good with this. And I'm the only one that's maybe feeling a little bit of tension in my heart. And I'm looking around the room and I realize these people don't know the Lord. None of them. There's not one in this group of about 50 people who know the Lord. In fact, there's people there who, who, who value uh, a same-sex relationship. There's those who value that there is no God, that, that there might be some type of special power or a cosmic bunny. But none of them believe in the one true God. And I started to get nervous. I mean, I've done a lot of weddings, and I've got kind of my wedding pitch down, and I tell the marriage story, and I was prepared to tell the marriage story then, but as I'm sitting back seeing my brother pledging his love and devotion to this person, not his wife, not this woman, I'm nervous, and I'm scared to death. And what I'm scared to death about it is like, what am I going to say? Do I get up here and, and bring this sword down on these people? Not a good idea, I'll just tell you that. Um, do I gently bring the truth down, maybe? Or do I just kind of punt and I come up with some generic blessing that, oh, person of the universe, I pray in a universal way that you could... No, I, I knew at that moment God had called me for this moment in time. And so I got up there and I shared the marriage story. But I shared it in a very sensitive way. I shared that man was meant to be with woman, that God was all about life and not about death, and that God created all this stuff, and he said it was good. And when he created man, he said it was very good. But then he said it was not good for them to be alone. And that's why we gathered today, here today. And I said, hopefully I've provided a little more color to this ceremony that you've just witnessed. There was a few more things I said in there, but you get the gist. I read from what I referred to as the ancient text. Because hippies love the ancient text. They're not necessarily fond of the Bible, okay? And so I read from these ancient texts for them. And I looked around, and my brother is weeping. And his wife is weeping. And the, the couple who have the same-sex orientation were weeping. And people were coming up to me and saying, those were unbelievable words. But the one thing that was common amongst that whole setting was nobody came up to me and said, I'm so glad you talked about God because I'm a Christian. Not one of them. 
I was in a room or in a backyard completely on my own, face to face with the world. And what that led me to think about is I've got to change my style a little bit. We have to change our style. Way. In fact, uh, Lucas Cooper preached on this a few weeks ago when he says, just saying the Bible said so doesn't necessarily uh, do it anymore. So I've had to change my pitch a little bit when I'm in these circles. And so rather than just come out with God, Jesus, and some scripture, which is tough because the questions always lead for me, so what do you do? And when I tell my pastor, there's a whole new set of expectations that are involved in that setting. And so I've changed my pitch just a little bit to, to get people talking. Because if I start with God, Jesus, or some type of scripture, it's a deal killer. It's a conversation killer at that moment. And I'm a people guy. I love people. So I want to engage with people. And so I've changed my little pitch to where I'm talking about three questions when they ask me, what do I do? And I said, you know, my job is really a simple job. I'm helping people get from birth to death but also death to life. And during that time of birth to death, we're all kind of faced with three questions that happen over and over again. And I don't care who you are, we're all faced with these questions. No matter where you come from, no matter what culture, no matter what you believe, you're faced with three questions. And what they are is, how did I get here? Is this really real? Is everything I'm experiencing real? What's my meaning and purpose to life? And what happens when I die? We all are going to face that one, and we all have to wrestle with that. And so those three questions seem to be the ones that allow me to have some type of conversation that can gently move people towards what it is that I believe God wants them to hear. But the one thing that resonates with every single one of them, because there's a variety of answers and questions about the creation part, and there's a variety of answers about when we die, but the one thing we all seem to have in common is this meaning and purpose to our life, this middle part. It resonates with people, because they've been pointed at fame, they've been pointed at fortune, they've been painted at, or pointed to power, they've been pointed to their jobs, to their spouse, all these things that was their purpose in life. Yet every single one of them had one thing in common. It left them short. It left them missing something. And then I began to think about Christians. As we join together, we know those answers. We know the beginning. We know the middle and we know the end. And so I thought, well, maybe, well, then I thought, no. There is no way any of us face that question as a church. What's our meaning and purpose of life? I know none of you worry about that. I know none of you fear that. I know, in fact, you're completely comfortable with who you are as a man, who you are as a woman, who you are as a father, son, daughter, uh, in your marriage. You're completely content in your job. You never worry about it. You never meet with anybody and say, oh my goodness, I'm so dissatisfied. What is the meaning and purpose of life? I know none of you do that. And I know none of you have ever cried out to the Lord and said, Lord, I don't know what to do. I'm on this earth and I don't know. Should I keep this job? Should I not keep this job? Should I keep this spouse? Should I not keep this spouse? I know every, well, you guys don't wrestle with that. So we're going to close right now and I'm just going to pray. See, I didn't think so. I think every single one of us at some point in time wrestles with this question in the middle from birth to death is what's our meaning and purpose to life. I think every one of us at some point in time wrestle with that. And so for those of us who do wrestle with that, oh boy, the Bible has an important message. These ancient texts have an important message that they want to share with you this morning. And what I'm going to read for you is a passage of Scripture. And when we preach, we, do a, uh, we try to do a really good job of interpreting that passage. 
We try to understand who the author is. We try to understand the context. We try to understand the culture that that author is speaking to. We're trying to understand if there's certain phrases that are repeated over and over, certain words that are repeated over, over and over. And then what we try to do is we try to make some application to us today. And sometimes that's easier and sometimes that's harder. Well, me being a simple country boy, I found a great passage that the interpretation is real easy. The interpretation is Jesus, so that's a really cool author, and I love to hear the words of Jesus with one simple message. One simple message that will bring unity to us as a church that is ultimately going to point people to the Lord. It's going to bring unity in this family so that when you're in a wedding, when you're at a party, when you're in your work, when you're in your school, you're going to be pointing people to Christ. And so I'm going to read for you that passage in just a moment, but I want to set it up because good preachers set up kind of what they're going to read from. And so I'm going to read from the uh, book of John. It's not up here yet. I'm going to read for it in just a second. In John 17. So if you want to turn there, start going there now. John is the fourth gospel, the fourth book of the New Testament. And the way my mom taught me, it was Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John all go to bed with their socks on. And so you get to that fourth one and find John 17. What's neat about John 17 is it's the longest recorded prayer of Jesus. The longest recorded prayer of Jesus in the Bible. And what's significant about this particular prayer is it was prayed in the Garden of Gethsemane on the night that Jesus was to be arrested. The night that would start the clock of him leading to the cross. Now what we hear about a lot about that prayer or the prayer in the Garden is that prayer where Jesus was feeling the weight of the world crushing down upon him. And we heard him cry out, Is there any way for this not to happen? And he says, no, it's your will be done, God. But this is another prayer that is recorded at this time, and we're so fortunate that John had recorded it for us. And so there was a reason why Jesus was praying this particular prayer and wanted John to record it so that we could hear it this morning in Phoenix, Arizona. That prayer, and I hope you just make a note of it in your Bibles and go back and read it because we won't have time to do the entire uh, chapter there, but it's broken up into three parts. And the three parts are we have the first section is where Jesus prays for himself because he knows what's about to happen. And he's praying that God would give him basically the perseverance to go through this, but ultimately that God would be glorified in this time. The second section, he begins to pray for the disciples because he knows their world is about to get rocked because when he goes to heaven, they're on their own. And they're going to face persecution the likes they've never seen and they don't have Jesus behind them. But what's going to be fascinating is they have Jesus in them. And they're going to do uncommon and extraordinary things. And so he prays for them specifically. And then we pick up on the section that I want to share with you this morning. And what's so important about it is we know who the author is. We know it's Jesus. We know when it was happening in the Garden of Gethsemane. We know the evening that it was happening and what was significant about it. But here's the good news, is we don't have to guess who the audience was. The audience was you. He says specifically, I pray for those that are going to believe you. Now, when I look out into the audience, with the exception of Ray Siegerman, maybe, nobody was in the garden (laughs) on that evening. 
So with the exception of Ray, I'm kidding, Ray, we are all this audience that he is speaking to today. So let's look up on the screen. I'm going to read it with you. And we're going to pick up these three verses in John chapter 17, verses 20 through 23. Now, this is Jesus in the garden in this third third movement of this passage. He says, I do not ask for these only. He's referring to the disciples in the section before that, but also for those who will believe in me through their word. So he's praying specifically for those of us who would come to know him through their word. He says that they may all be one, just as you, Father, are in me and I in you, that they also may be in us, so that the world may believe that you have have sent me the glory (laughs) that's a sign (laughs) the glory that you have given me I have given to them that they may one even as we are one I in them and you in me that they may become perfectly one so that the world may know that you sent me and love them even as you love me now quick little synopsis of those three verses He's praying for us. He's telling us to be unified. He's telling us to find unity. And the result of that unity will be our purpose. Our purpose is that the world might know Jesus. Our purpose is that the world may believe in Jesus. That is our purpose. And the only thing of that praying for us, the only thing that the unity, the only thing that the result is that the world may know that we can really control is unity. And so he gives us four ingredients, four topics within here that I'm going to talk about this morning because he knew unity would be a big deal within the church. He knew that there would be different denominations, different religions, different ancient texts, different song choices, different worship styles, different communion processes, and I could go on and on and on, but he wanted us to be unified in something here that I'm going to uncover for you. Now, one great advantage of sending me to seminary is what they teach you in seminary is how to create messages that have acronyms attached to them. So for thousands of dollars... I've learned how to put together acronyms or put together points that all have the same letters in them. In this particular one, I've tried to use the word same. And if you look in your outline, you'll see S-A-M-E, and those are going to be four key ingredients to what is coming out of this passage that Jesus is speaking to us. So let's get started, okay? The first one is, the first S is the source of our true unity, the source of our true unity. What Jesus is making sure of is that we are all on the same page here. And the verse, the, the verse that speaks to that specifically is where he reminds you that he's praying t- for you. He says, I do not ask for these only, but for those who will believe you. But it, in these simple three words, he says that will believe in me through their word. Jesus wanted to make no doubt that there was one book that we start with. There is one book that we read from. There is one message that we hear. And it's through their word, these human authors, the eyewitnesses that were there when Jesus lived, were there when Jesus died, and more importantly, they were there when Jesus rose from the dead. They were there when the Holy Spirit came upon them. They were there when they went to their death proclaiming that Jesus was alive. 
These would be the first witnesses that would take this truth, a simple message that Jesus lived, died, and rose from the dead so that we might be united with him because of our sin. That simple message they took from Jerusalem to Judea to Samaria all the way to Phoenix, Arizona. They would be the ones that would fulfill their destiny to take their message of Jesus' resurrection to the entire world. We are the benefactors of those disciples today. In fact, when when the first church is described in Acts chapter 2, it talks about a very simple, simple church. In Acts chapter 2, let me read it for you. In verse 42, it says, And they, the first church, the first believers that were holding true to their word, the apostles. It says, And they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching. They weren't going to other theories, other ancient texts. They were simply going to these letters that said Jesus lived, Jesus died, and Jesus rose from the dead so that we could be forgiven of our sins and we would have eternal life with him. That's it. That was the simple message that they, would, that they were teaching. There were some other things that were real simple about this because Jesus also knew that he created us all unique and gave us all unique gifts. And so what they added to the apostles' teaching, which if you're probably familiar with this campus, we add a few things to the apostles' teaching too. It says, and the fellowship. They like to eat. They like to have barbecues on the first Sunday of each month. And it says, into the breaking of bread, that is a beautiful picture of communion. They wanted to be reminded regularly that Jesus Christ lived and died for our sins and rose from the dead so that we would have eternal life with him. So they did communion regularly. And then lastly, they devoted themselves to prayer. That was it. There was no fancy slogans. There was no fancy programs. It was simply apostles teaching, eating together, remembering what Christ had done and then praying together. And what was so amazing at the end of that section in verse 47, it says, and the Lord added to their number day by day those who were being saved. See, God knew that these disciples, their teaching would be the thing, the source of our unity. Number two, the A. So we looked at the source. The second one we look at is Jesus' appeal his appeal for true unity, or his plea. And as I told you earlier, when we interpret these passages, you look for phrases or you look for words that occur multiple times. And if you notice how many times the word one came up, that he wanted us to be one, that he wanted us to be united, united we stand. And what drives me crazy as a church and as a community is when we choose things that are not one to die on. We choose things that are kind of on the fringe of our doctrine or on the fringe of our styles or the fringe of what we like or don't like, and we choose to die on those things. But Jesus was very careful here. He wanted us to be one with what I would refer to as the non-negotiables. You know, I I, I get challenged sometimes in in conversations with people that want to fight me about when Jesus is going to return, want to fight me with regards to are we living in the tribulation now, are we going to be raptured, and then Jesus is going to come back some point in time, and then the tribulation, or the tribulation occur, and then Jesus is going to come back. I get argued back and forth in this, and I realize those are healthy arguments to have because they help us understand the scriptures, but they're not doing anything to win souls for Christ. And then I have to remind this person, I said, well, at the end of the day, one of us is going to be wrong. 
And it kind of refocuses us on what is it that makes us one. In fact, in the uh, Church of England, uh, they decided in the 1600s to try and bring some semblance of order as the Reformation was occurring and the Protestant faith was being liberated. They brought together a group of some of the most intelligent religious thinkers at the time in what was called, what would ultimately be called the Westminster Confession. And they would give a list of things that we believe in. And it was one thing that united them absolutely for a moment. But what was so funny about our own human nature is within just a few years, all of a sudden, a group called the Presbyterians thought, we're going to add a little bit more to it. The Congregational said, we're going to add a little bit to it. The Baptists said, we're going to add a little bit to it. So we're constantly changing this thing. But the one thing that was important about the Westminster Confession was that it said, Although this is the best guess we have at what it is we believe, they said it will always be subordinate to this ancient text, this scripture. And so I want to read for you what it's subordinate to from Ephesians chapter 4. I want you to write this down in your notes so that you can come back to this later and read what Paul would say it is that unifies us as a church. I'll read from you starting in verse 1 of chapter 4. It says, I therefore, a prisoner for the Lord, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called, with all humility and gentleness and patience, bearing with one another in love, eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. And here it is, seven things that we are to be known for as a church. What we are to base our oneness on. It says in verse 4, there is one body and one spirit, just as you were called to one hope that belongs to your call. One Lord, one faith, one baptism, and one God and Father of all who is over all and through all and all. Seven things are the non-negotiables in our faith. One body the church, the believers that have been joined together since Pentecost, one body, one spirit, the third person of the Trinity, fully God, dwelling with believers. He is our comforter, our convictor. He is our teacher. He is God within us, the one who draws us into relationship with Christ. One hope. That one hope is the promised eternal inheritance guaranteed to every believer. One Lord, Jesus Christ, fully God, the second person of the Trinity, the head of the body, the church. One faith, faith that was handed down by these saints who were eyewitnesses to a risen Jesus. The body, the doctrine that Jesus Christ came to this earth so that we might not be condemned, but would be saved. One baptism. What that simply means is not necessarily how we baptize, because that gets confusing from church to church to church. But one baptism means one confession of faith in Jesus Christ. And then lastly, one God and Father, the first person of the Trinity who is over all and in all, one true God, the sovereign ruler of everything, including the church. That is the non-negotiable that makes us one. How we worship, the things we eat, the different cultures, the different languages, the different styles that we have are all negotiable. 
And I would pray those things aren't the things that divide us. The only thing that can divide us are these seven things that Paul said is the unity of this body. So we have the source, is their words, these apostles' words. We have a plea for Jesus to be one, and it's based upon these seven characteristics. And the third ingredient is an M, the model for true unity. What's fascinating about this one is Jesus sets a standard that only Jesus could do. He set a standard so high that we knew we would never be able to attain it, but that doesn't mean we're striving. We're not striving to attain it. Read with me on the screen as I read for these passages in verses 21 through 23 in John 17. As he's praying to God, he says, Just as you, Father, are in me and I in you, that they also may be in us. That's the Trinity. That's the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, the perfect relationship that the world would ever know. It says, The glory that you have given me, I have given to them, that they may be one, even as we are one, the Father, Son, the Holy Spirit. I in them and you in me, that they may be perfectly one. This Trinity is a difficult thing to get your head around. One God, three persons, yet fully God. It's something that boggles the most intelligent minds that we have. But I thought what we could identify with, as opposed to getting our arms around this great big complex thing called the Trinity, was to maybe look at the characteristics of this perfect relationship that's been in existence for all time. This relationship is perfect in submission. Everybody's job is to give glory to God. They are perfect in their motive, perfect in their motive. Their sole purpose is to reveal the glory of God. They are perfectly united in their mission, which is redeeming the loss and granting eternal life. They're perfectly united in truth. Jesus, the Holy Spirit, could only speak what the Father wanted them to speak. They were perfectly united in holiness. Sinless and perfect, they're completely separated from sin. And lastly, they were perfectly united in love. And just an indication of the deep love that Jesus has for you, I'm going to read for you that verse 24, which wasn't on the screen earlier from this passage in John 17. As he begins to close his prayer, he says, Father, I desire that they also, you, whom you have given me, may be with me where I am, to see the glory that you have given me because you have loved me before the foundation of the world. It's an indication that Jesus was there in the beginning, that Jesus was in heaven, came down to the earth, and was returning to heaven. And his sole desire was to have you with him. His sole desire wasn't to convict you, wasn't to condemn you, it was to save you. And he knew how beautiful of a place this was in heaven, where this perfect relationship is going to be experienced. And he wanted you, in this last hour of anguish, to be with him. And so he sets a model for us of this relationship between Father, Son, and Holy Ghost that seems unattainable. And this side of heaven, it is. But what I think he's speaking to us, are we perfectly in submission to each other? Are we perfect in our motives? Are we perfectly united in our mission, in truth, in holiness? 
And are we perfectly united in love? So God has set for us a model that's pretty high, but remember, we're held to an entirely different standard than the world. And so that model is something we ought to be striving for. Lastly, our fourth ingredient. True, the, the true of, let me, let me back up. The E in this is the effect or the result of true unity. And that's our purpose. And what's beautiful about this purpose is we don't have to do anything. We have to be unified in our faith, unified in our mission, unified in our motive, and this is what the result is, our purpose. In John 17, 21 and 23, it says, so that the world may believe that you have sent me, so that the world may know that you sent me and love them even as you loved me. You see, Jesus would have the disciples that would be the first carriers of this world word, and then we would be used next. He would use us to be his hands and feet, his words in a world that is so divided. His hope that within the church he would see a group so loving, so unified, so caring, so compassionate, so forgiving, so grace-filled, so understanding the truth that it would be so attractive that the world might believe that Jesus was who he said he was. So that people might know this Jesus. So that when they're scrambling around the world trying to find meaning and purpose in anything else but Jesus, they find peace that can only come through Jesus. Well, we know where our source of unity comes from. We know where our appeal for unity comes from. We know the model that Jesus set for us, and we know the effect of our unity. So what are we going to do now with these words that aren't very difficult to interpret? It's Jesus speaking to you, and he has a plea for you. He has a plea for us. So what are we going to do as individuals, and what are we going to do as a church? I think we all have to examine ourselves. We have to examine our motives, our mission. Is it for us to reveal the glory of Rick, or is it to reveal the glory of God? And are we united in that mission? Is every thought and action in our mind and in our hands, are they held captive for Jesus all the time? And how am I staying grounded in this truth? How am I staying nourished in what Jesus wants me to drink from, his cistern? What other cisterns are we drinking from? What other books, what other uh, people are we going to to be nourished from? How am I individually contributing to this instruction to be united? Am I someone who's trying to divide us? Am I a gossiper? Am I a dissenter? Or am I someone who's bringing us together as a united group? Can I appreciate the perfect example of the Trinity, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, and how they were fully in submission, how they were fully united in purpose and mission, fully united in love? Do I see that as my standard, or do I set something a little bit lower as my standard? And here's the one that tugs at my heart and why I'm in the business that I'm in. Do I long for the world to believe? Do I long for the world to know that 
Jesus is who he said he was. I guess I could have changed my pitch at the wedding to be a little bit more gender neutral. But this is the one that drives me, is that I realize there's people living and dying every single day that are bound for an eternity separated from the Lord. And that's what motivates me to be here. That's what motivates me to speak as best I can the hard truth in a hostile circumstances. But more importantly, we as a church, how do we examine these words and how do they apply for us as a church? You know, we're a growing church and we're bringing into our midst people from different cultures, people from different backgrounds, people from different languages, people from different hurts, people from different sins, people that don't look like us or talk like us. We're bringing in all of these people into this church And do they see a people that are so united in their love for the Lord? There's these non-negotiables that we're holding to, but everything else is negotiable for the sake of loving the Lord and loving our neighbors as ourselves. Can we still be unified when all of this newness comes in, all of these new ideas or new thoughts about how we should do things or how we shouldn't do things or how we used to do things, will we remain united in that front? As I close, I want to paint a picture for you to imagine what that could look like. Imagine what that could look like to see a unified Scottsdale Bible Church cactus campus. It's where we see opportunities to serve, whether it's on campus or off campus. It's not just obligations or not things that I simply check off my list because they make me feel good, but we see that as these divine appointments that are pointing people to knowing Jesus, pointing people to believing in Jesus, where we see opportunities to teach, whether they be in small groups or with our kids, as an opportunity to expand the knowledge of our future priests pointing people to eternity. Where we see our walls bursting at the seams, not simply because of great programs or music or those types of things, but because they see a genuine love that we have for God and our genuine love that we have for His creation, those people in our community. Again, pointing them to eternity because our purpose is eternity. Our purpose is to see people ushered into eternity. You're going to hear about something in the next few weeks that Nick, our guy, our new guy, is going to take charge of. It's a program that I've kind of coined called Cactus Cares. And it's going to be a way in which, as as we've grown, it's been harder to harness all of you into action. And so this Cactus Cares is, is going to be this really cool portal I'm going to put a lot of pressure on Nick right now. This really cool part that, that, that's going to help harness you to get you into action on this campus as well as in the community. Because we want the world to know that Jesus is real. We want the world to believe that Jesus was real. Can you just imagine what that would look like for us? And here's the great news. Jesus did. Jesus prayed this prayer because he knew this is what we wanted, we needed to hear. He wanted us to be so unified that they would know he was real. 
you know, not, I feel like I'm preaching a little bit at the choir here because this is more of a reminder for us as believers. And we're doing a good job. When I see the unity of this church, locked arms together, serving and loving on this community, I'm blown away. You know, I'm reminded regularly that this church was closed. Chain link fence surrounded this church because the body that met here was not unified. They did not love their neighbors. And so I see great things. When I was at that wedding, I gotta tell you, there was probably at least 50 people there, 50 different truths, 50 different directions they were headed. There was no unity within that wedding. When I look out at you, I see a group that's unified. And I would imagine, just as Jesus would, what we could do as a community to reach our neighbors, to reach our friends. Because eternity waits in the balance for those who don't know him. And our purpose is that the world would know him. And so your takeaway today is eternity is found in unity. Eternity is found in unity. So I hope today you've been reminded by the words of Jesus in a very simple passage how we are to be united. There's some non-negotiables that we are united on. But as we get beyond that, there are things that are more non-negotiable. But yet we remain united as a group. I'm reminded of, um, there was a, a, a group that was asking about the church in China. And they got together with this underground church. You know, they can't meet publicly. They're meeting in secret. And they said, you know, what would cause you to leave this church? They said, would it be a worship style or the teaching style or someone you don't like or maybe they don't serve the right barbecue? And the guy in the Chinese church said, we, we got nowhere else to go. This is our church. We, we live together and we worship together and we serve together. We, we don't have a church on every single corner. And the church in China is blowing up. And so that's my prayer for us. That's my hope for us, is that we can remain so united on the non-negotiables and our common love for God that it just spills out and continues to spill out into this community for a love for the lost so that the world might know and so that the world might believe. Let me pray for us in that end. Lord, we are grateful for your truth. We're grateful for your message. We're grateful for your simple words. We're grateful that you were thinking of us in the midst of a garden and in the midst of what you knew was about to take place in your own life. You still had us in mind. Lord, I thank you that we've received your prayers and that you're doing a mighty work in our midst. Continue to strengthen us from the inside, Lord, as we then point others to you. Lord, we're so grateful for this time that we have together to be sharpened, to go out into this hostile world and bring unity to it. In Jesus' name, amen. Before you leave, please pray for me. I'm being a very emotional experience this next week. My daughter, Morgan, gets married next Sunday out in Boston, and I'm flying out tomorrow night. And she said to me yesterday, which I don't know why, she didn't give me a little more heads up on this, but she didn't. She said, hey, we're going to have a dance together. I didn't know we were going to have a dance. And she said, what song do you want for our dance? Well, 
just even her saying that, I'm just on the phone going, let me think about it, okay? I guess, and so I just pray that I don't mess up her wedding dress, okay? So let love be genuine, hate what is evil, and hold fast to what is good. And what is good is there's one God who unites us, one faith that unites us, one hope that unites us, one eternity that unites us. Bless you, and I look forward to seeing you soon.